Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Very excited to be speaking with Dr. Lauren Michelle Jackson, who teaches in the Departments of English and African American Studies at Northwestern University. She is the author of White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. Her work has also appeared in a whole host of publications, um, and she's currently working on a second book. She's also speaking tonight as part of the Wheeler Center's Broadly Speak series, alongside some of my faves, including Amy McGuire, Nyadol Nyon, and Tanya Talaga. Lauren, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I need to tell you that I referenced White Negroes in a lecture about internet cultures just last week. (laughs) And I was thinking about what, you know, in what world, you know, whether I could actually speak to you, but I didn't know that we were going to have this interview, but I was thinking about, I wonder what, you know, Lauren thinks about this Jessica Krug situation or Britt Bennett. I wonder what Britt Bennett thinks about this Jessica Krug situation. And here we are, and we'll be able to talk about it a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, wow, what a... (laughs) What an interesting situation, to what say the least. Feels a bit like deja vu, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. I do want to start with your book, though. So it's called White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. It's come out when the topic of cultural appropriation is kind of all the buzz in, in good and bad ways. What made you start thinking about really unpacking what all of this means? For me, I think it was really trying to intercede in a lot of conversations that I saw going on that you're referencing about cultural appropriation. I think somewhere around like 2013 was like kind of a watershed moment where Miley Cyrus is like twerking on stage at the VMAs and the press is kind of looking for, you know, what is the thing that is going to be at the front of our headlines that's going to garner a lot of clicks and a lot of outrage and, and all of that. And I I thought that what was being lost in that was what could have been a kind of really nuanced conversation about the ways in which, quote-unquote, American culture, which is just considered the culture, right, really borrows from and is inspired by the culture that comes out of black and brown communities that is, you know, so rarely cited or acknowledged or, or given credit both financially and, and culturally. And so really the book is just like my way of like sort of putting my stamp on it and really trying to slow down and back up and say like, okay, if we remove like the punitive element of what we're doing when we point out cultural appropriation, like what is a more interesting conversation that we can have that actually looks at the culture closely and reads it closely and, and thinks about the sort of historical background for why these things keep happening and how they happen differently in in an internet age. Mm. I I've felt in the last few years that our and I guess this is kind of relates exactly to what you were saying, but our cultural appropriation discourse, we're kind of doing it wrong. And I'm also feeling like privileged discourse is looking a little bit wonky, cancel culture conversations, not looking quite right. And I'm 
finding the reason why it doesn't feel all the way right is because, you know, we might individualize it, but also somehow remove the very active and like enjoyed power that white people, non-disabled people, cisgendered, hetero people, rich people, whoever have. How can we upgrade the discourse, Lauren? Oof. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think people, I think upgrading the discourse would mean like, like slowing down the discourse or like, I don't know. I just think like, I think a lot of people, I think there's just like a lot of really people who are using terms and concepts and like, really bad face gestures. So, you know, I know a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, for mm. example, like intersectionality, right? People are so, you know, people will toss that around now in op-eds of like, as like an example of like cancel culture, which is like doesn't even make any sense, mm-hmm. but they just lab latched onto it as a word that a certain group of people that they don't like used to describe um, their experiences with power, right? And so, first of all, I think to sort of upgrade the discourse, first of all, people have to want to actually, Mm. like, have conversations with other people and actually want to be smarter about the way they interpret the world. And I think there's a lot of people that actually don't care about any of that, right? But I think for the people who do, I think it's worth, you know, I mean, I'm a literature professor, so I'll always say, you know, read books. Books are great actually look at the origins of the terms that come up, whether it's on Twitter or in an op-ed or in, on a podcast or something like that, because chances are the origins of that term are a little bit more complex and even more specific than they tend to get used in popular culture. You know, another term that I think is really hot right now is white fragility yes. coming out of a book that was written by Robin D'Angelo and you know, there's a lot of things you could say about that term in that book and, and her work, but I also think part of the issue is that I think people are expecting that term to do the sort of work or bear the sort of interpretive load that, like, it actually was never meant to and could never possibly contain. Like, it's supposed to contain all the experiences of racism that white people perpetuate when it's like, actually, no, if you actually read the book, which I think fewer people have who, you know, invoke its name, you know, it's actually this term that describes this really limited sense of behavioral responses to certain, like, bourgeois, like, situations, mm-hmm. like, in the workplace or in, like, the PTA meeting, right? It's, like, not, you know, it's not meant to explicate, like, all of, like, American racism, racism at large. And yet people have tried to use it in that way and then get mad that, like, the term is insufficient when it's, like, no, actually, it's the way that you're using it that's insufficient, yeah. I find I find that with privilege. I, f- I find the like discourse surrounding privilege and the conversations that surround privilege um, and people saying that like, you know, colonization, we can define colonization through what we consider to be white privilege. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> what? White privilege, and this is not the same thing. You can't describe a big kind of imperial movement or a big kind of need to grow an empire and and genocide and call that, you know, an application of white privilege. This is not the same thing. No, not at all. No, people have taken privilege and, like, run with it. And I've come back and I've actually spoken with Peggy McIntosh, who's 
credited with popularizing that term. And I think she, when she was writing about privilege, she writes about it in these very modest ways. She was writing it in these educational materials that are meant to be very accessible. And yet, for some reason, like, privilege has, like, ballooned into, like, again, like, this. it's just, like, it cannot bear everything that people are trying to attribute to it. Um, And it was, like, never meant to. You know, we have other terms like power. We have terms like colonialism and and ways of thinking about violence in the current world that, like, you know, that's not what privilege is. Mm. Privilege is supposed to explain why you're getting the interview and the person next to you who's, like, several shades darker than you is not getting the interview despite being as much, if not more, qualified for the same job. And, like, that's a very specific situation. Exactly. It's, yeah, a small kind of pet peeve and also as a teacher and I sometimes kind of pull my hair out in conversations with students and I guess the point is to, you know, teach and be a good teacher about the way some of these terms are thrown around and I sometimes am considered a little bit pedantic about language and I'm like, no, 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 let's let's just pause. That's actually not what it is. That's what we call colonisation. That's not white privilege. Let's reverse and start doing some definitions. That's wrong. Let's start again. Because it is, it, then you kind of carry this language and you use it in a way that kind of A, absolves us of or people of responsibility and then also B, is just it's just not right. Absolutely. And um, I want to talk a little bit about Christina Aguilera because, you know, she's mentioned in your book and um, you also mentioned Miley Cyrus a little bit earlier and I wonder if the kind of moment of rebellion that Christina Aguilera takes when she kind of dabbles a little bit into black culture more than she was doing a little bit earlier and Miley's as well there was like a little bit of a rebellious moment where she dabbled into black culture and then almost denounced it denounced hip-hop culture for its misogyny or whatever when she kind of decided it was time to come back to the warm and welcoming you know embrace of white womanhood what is that what happens in this in these moments The, that chapter is actually really fun to write, um, and part of the reason why I chose Christina Aguilera is that she was kind of my way to write about Miley without, like, actually writing about Miley, <laughs> so I did end up actually, like, spending a little bit of time with Miley, because I think her trajectory is ultimately, like, a really common story mm. in pop music, and not just for women in pop music, but also for men, but I think there is something particular about women, especially women who begin, like, so young, like Christina did, like Brittany did, like Miley did, where it's, like, you are going through your adolescence, like, under the guise of, like, not only the public, but also your record label under Disney, under these, like, super major controlling contractual relationships, and it's, like, how do you have a, you know, how do you have an adolescence? How do you have a rebellion? How do you come into your own as a woman, as like a sexual being, you know, under these pressures that, you know, demand that you on one hand have like the sexual male gaze upon you and mm-hmm. on the other of your appeal is that you're like, you know, a poppy Disney alum who's like very safe and can be played in the minivan, right, to talk about this. And so I think out of that kind of bind and that particular bind for white girls and for white women and for white teens in the public eye, it's like 
jumping into black genres of music and fashion and hairstyles, it's like that's sort of the shortcut into reaching maturity, mm-hmm. basically, because it's like it's the way you can sort of wield your professional prowess to like have this like dangerous phase because blackness is like the shortcut to being perceived as rebellious and sexual and and all those things so it's like if you can't actually do the things that like a lot of teenagers do you know you'll get box braids in your hair and you'll start hanging out with like hip-hop musicians and and putting chat beats in your songs things like that and then sort of when you're done when you actually get to the other side of that is like oh no no I'm a serious musician which is what happened with Christina Aguilera in her like where she like scrubbed off all the tanner and dyed her hair back to blonde (laughs) and had a classic red lip but I also think that's something that's really interesting about Christina is that like she actually never did the she never did like the explicit disavowal that Miley did mm-hmm. like so she was never really coming out and being like that wasn't me or disparaging music genres at least not that I read um, instead for her it's always been a sort of different phase of black music that she's been interested in so she grew up listening to like R&B and like soul records and then she sort of returns to that sort of classic place in her like back to basics era etc and so I think it's really interesting She's like a really interesting case for it's like, if we don't talk about appropriation in punitive terms, how can we actually think about the sort of artistic evolution of this singer and songwriter? And so that's what I was really trying to do by looking at Christina. It's interesting because I think a lot about the way in which there is kind of like this all-encompassing experience of black culture being a kind of pop culture, you know, becomes kind of pop culture. And and the black culture that I'm talking about within this context is black American culture because then that takes over the conversation of what is black culture even around the world, even in, you know, different parts of, you know, Europe, Australia, wherever. And I think a lot about the fact that it then becomes when black culture is considered pop culture, it then becomes like a free-for-all and the internet seems to be very much kind of propelling this through what you call digital blackface, the memes, the reaction gifs, TikTok now where you really can embody, (laughs) anyone can embody any sound or anyone's voice or you can kind of perform blackness in a way where you can actually physically embody it. Does that kind of muddy the waters when black culture is commodified in that way and then kind of seeps its way into what is considered popular culture? Absolutely. I mean, I think the internet has been like, it's like a real challenge to thinking about the transmission and circulation of culture because nothing is straightforward anymore. Mm. So I like to say that, you know, back in the day, like, you used to actually have to, like, you used to at least have to, like, go to the quote-unquote shady part of town and, like, hit up the jazz club if you want to, like, hear black musicians, like, doing their thing. Like, you have to go, like, a lot of, like, producers would go in the early 20th century down to the south and, like, take crib notes of, like, black blues singers and bring it up north for, like, a white girl thing, right? You actually had to, like, go someplace and move your body and actually interact in, in some sort of way directly with like the object that you're um that you're you're borrowing from, right? But now with like Instagram and things like that, I think 
the it's so seamless that it's like you are adopting elements of like a cultural economy that like you know you probably aren't even cognizant mm. of it right so like you you know people are getting their fashion tips from like the kardashians and it's like and, and not even the kardashians but like from the much much more minor like micro celebrity or micro influencer who is also who themselves is sort of modeled after the kardashians but it's like there's so many layers of mediation that it's like when you point out to them like hey you're dressing like a girl like a black girl from philly they like you know the first reaction is like what are you talking about right because they don't they never you know they didn't go to that girl's block in like jacker style they saw like the many filtered iterations of what that style looks like on you know whiter and whiter mm. bodies so to speak i think like the internet is it really is like a challenge to like how we sort of build these or keep track of credit, keep track of genealogy, of fashion and style. And it's also one of those things that allows for a lot of plausible deniability, mm. especially on behalf of fashion labels and designers and companies who can essentially steal from smaller artists on the Internet and, you know, say it was never and it, it's like it never happened because that person has 2,000 followers in their, you know, there's Zara, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, who's 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 a judge going to believe, right? This like huge company or like this random person on Instagram whose reach is just so much smaller. It's interesting because in Australia, often the kind of performances of black culture that are seen in mainstream media from like white Australians, I can tell often that it is from like second or third hand exposure <laughs> to blackness. So whether it is, like you said, an influencer or a person that they follow who is following someone else who may have followed someone who's black and that there is maybe not a direct, you know, association with what they might be saying or what they might be doing or how they might be dressing with what is considered black culture. And I think in Australia in particular, that is something that is very, very clear because you you see that the, the types of people who might be using certain language or whatever and you just know that they don't know where that comes from you, you know there's no way that you have a sense of what kind of historical or cultural moment this is from and so this this point that you made about the internet meaning you don't have to go and like steal the culture yourself or you don't have to go and borrow the culture or extract the culture yourself it makes it easier is something that is very much seen in this country so much if you pay attention. Yeah, and I think the thing to keep in mind also is that, like, so much of this of this is, like, it's really, really, like, not consciously mm-hmm. done. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the scroll on Instagram. It's the scroll on TikTok. It's all that stuff. You know, I mean, you know, older mass culture, like, television and billboards and all that stuff still applies, of course. But it's, like, a lot of this stuff happens without us knowing it. And so I think we have to get out of the idea of, like, appropriation as, like, this intentional thing, mm-hmm. you know, is there a record, you know, a record, a room in a record labor somewhere where someone's like very deliberately like, yes, we should like steal this person's look and sound like, I don't know, probably, <laughs> but like the vast majority of this is sort of happening just like, you know, as you were saying, it just sort of like floats into the culture and like no one really knows where it came from or rather the people who do know where it came from 
are so discounted that, you know, they don't get to be considered as part of the equation. Yeah. Um, I've kept you on the line for a while now, and I did say that we were going to talk a little bit about Jessica Krug, but not too much. You know, we don't want to give it too much airtime. It's it's one thing to borrow culture for some cool points, whether intentionally or not. Is it something else altogether to inhabit race and perform it in such a shameless way? I mean, yes, of course. I mean, it's like, on one hand, I'm like, oh, this is like all part of like the same nature. On the other hand, this was obviously... Just to speak about Jessica Cruz, who is a professor at, um, former professor at George Washington University. She worked on black studies and she went through just these several phases of, I guess, identity, you could call it, throughout her life. And finally, as of was it last week or two weeks ago, I don't know, time, is, time doesn't mean anything. She wrote a long medium post basically pressing up to all of this. And I think what's interesting, or I think what's sort of crucial in the case of Jessica Krug is that she chose to say that she was from these places that would, just to go back to like plausible deniability again, Mm -hmm. like places that would be sort of like plausible home places for someone who looks like her. Mm -hmm. So like, this didn't seem to be the case of someone who's like wearing a deep, deep, tan and adding like an extra like curl to their hair or like really super modifying herself physically to say or like imply that she was like part of a a racial group that she wasn't you know she was saying that she was part Algerian for example Mm. and like using North Africa this place that is just so incredibly ethnically and religiously diverse such that like yeah, you can be, and it's just like blackness works very differently there than it maybe does in the U.S. So it's like you can kind of believe that she, you know, is what she claimed, right? Sort of a similar situation with her saying that she was from the Caribbean as well and saying that she was an Afro-Latina. And so I think she really just, I don't know, she really opened up a, a certain kind of American ignorance about the way race and ethnicity works in places that are not, America. And yeah, she was playing the long con. I mean, I think she also, and she, she talked about this, but she also had some mental issues that were going on. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like one of those things where it's like none of that, you know, none of that really excuses this, even if it might maybe explain why she chose to do what she did. But to keep up with it for so long and to be so deeply embedded in academia was... I mean, yeah, it was, it was, a lot. It was flagrant. It was, it's a wild thing. Yeah. It, yeah, it was definitely a lot. And I think, I guess, the really sophisticated, as you say, way in which she understands that blackness is not, you know, very, it is not necessarily always clear. It's not necessarily, you know, to not to use this, but it's not necessarily black and white. There are grey areas in there and there's a lot about culture and there's a lot about lived experience. There's a lot about different areas experiencing and blackness differently and the visibility being different for different communities and whatever. And so there must have been a very, very sophisticated understanding of like the boundaries, the limitations, but also the openness of what blackness looks like for someone to be able to do such a job at um, shamelessly performing it. It's, yeah, it's a lot. Lauren, I could chat with you forever. You know, it saddens me and I say this 
to lots of people that I interview that we can't do this in person, but hopefully all of this will be over by the time your second book comes out and hopefully, you know, we'll get you down for one of these writers' festivals in Australia and we can actually do an in-studio interview. Thank you so much for your time and your insights and your work. Thank you. This is, this is really great. Dr. Lauren Michelle Jackson teaches in the Departments of English and African American Studies at Northwestern University. She is the author of White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. If you want to hear more from the ever-profound Lauren Michelle Jackson, jump on the Wheeler Centre website to sign up for the epic panel she will be on alongside Amy McGuire, Nyadol Nyon and Tanya Talaga. It's a broadly speaking event titled Power, Privilege and Pushing Back. It's all online, of course, and will be happening from 6.15pm tonight. I'll be there watching in awe. (laughs) I hope you all will be as well. We've seen the media diversity report from just a few weeks ago, and we've probably seen other reports from the last few decades. We might also just notice things, (laughs) or we might not. But it's pretty clear that in Australia, racial diversity is deeply lacking, not just in media, but also in the arts. There are many artists of colour, but it seems, you know, they remain in the mid-career bubble and might end up experiencing more profound financial difficulties than their white colleagues. And I guess that's where Tarek Frimpong comes in and maybe the rest of us. Earlier I mispronounced his name and I told him that I was going to do that on the phone because I can't help it. I called you Tariq, but it's Tarek. And Tarek is the founder of the Artists of Colour Initiative and they're launching a scholarship competition to provide financial assistance and industry support for Indigenous, Black and other POC, People of Colour Theatre performances performers. Tarek, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what's your practice? What do you do within the theatre and arts world? Right, so I'm an actor, singer, dancer, a bit of a triple threat. I've done a lot of work in theatre, both here in Australia and on the West End. I've also done a little bit of film, and I've also done commercial dance work, dancing for pop artists and in music videos and things like that. You're kind of living my fantasy that, you know, I don't think I can ever achieve. Dancing in a music video. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of fun. I, I got to go on a world tour with the pop artist FKA Twigs. Oh, my gosh. What? Okay, this is a conversation for maybe off-air a little bit later. That is yeah. amazing. <laughs> so, But what was your lived experience like when it comes to working in the arts and, you know, getting some awesome gigs and all of that here and there? Absolutely, yes. I've, I've had an amazing time working in the arts. It's obviously what I, I love to do. I remember from a young age, it's kind of all I wanted to do. And when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was lucky enough to land a role in Disney's The Lion King, the musical, in its Australian premiere, playing young Simba. And it was kind of at that age that I was able to realise, oh, wow, I can do something I love for a living, which Mm. was spectacular and and, and amazing to find that you could do this as a job. And that's kind of where it all started for me. And as I said, I've then been able to, like, travel a lot and experience a lot of the world and experience so many different cultures, which has just been so, so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, such a brilliant time. And so what are the kind of not-so-exciting experiences of artists of colour within the industry that you work in? Absolutely. I think that comes down to, for me personally, the, the massive underrepresentation for black, indigenous and people of colour in the Australian theatre industry, in the theatre industry globally, as well as many other industries in the art. When it comes, it kind of comes from the top down, I think. It's kind mm-hmm. of like from the biggest producers to the people who are in casting and the creative teams for a lot of shows, they tend to be majority white. And in Mm. Australia, definitely, definitely so. And I think this leads to 
who we see being cast in the shows and who we've been selected for industry events and who we see being selected for in training institutions and things like that. So it kind of becomes this cycle of, from what I've heard from talking to so many different performers of colour, both established and pre-professional, mm. the lack of representation makes people feel unwelcomed. So it's this cycle of when you don't see yourself somewhere, you, it, it's hard to believe that this is a space for you or that this is achievable for you and therefore less people of colour are open to even applying or following down that path. So I think it's really important that, especially in this kind of downtime that everyone has, I've spoken about it before and said that with the lockdowns being currently experienced realistically around the world, it's almost like the theatre industry is on this big intermission Mm. and it's such an integral time that everybody comes together and we have some really important talks and put some really important strategies in place to make change and, and increase that representation and racial diversity in the theatre industry. Mm. And representation means a lot in many ways with regards to, you know, you can't see, you know, you can't be what you can't see and all of that. But in, pra- but in practical terms as well, it means if you're not getting cast or if you're not employed, you're not getting paid. And if you're not getting paid, this becomes an unsustainable career choice and maybe you can't continue, right? And then, the, you know, I know people personally within the arts who have had to do that and have had to actually kind of do this thing as a hobby, although they have every kind of capacity and all the skills to do it professionally because it's not something that has opened any doors for them. Is that Absolutely. a reality with the theatre um, group that you work with or the people of colour in theatre? Absolutely, definitely. So theatre can be so interesting because you can you may land a contract where you're in work for a year, which is spectacular and it's so exciting, and then after that year you can be out of work and looking for the next job kind of thing. And mm. when the the roles that are specifically for people of colour are so far and few between, it makes it hard. You may jump on a show like The Lion King or something for a year, but then it may not be X number of months before a show with more than one role for a person of colour comes around again. And then in that time that, like you said, you may have to find other work and do other things and able to provide for yourself or your family financially, which takes away from you having the time to further your craft, mm. further your craft sorry, as well as work on your skill set. And therefore it's harder for you to stay ready for then when those auditions do come around, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So again, it's it's kind of this cycle that I think is so important that we acknowledge and then work on breaking. Mm. And, you know, uh, being an artist, being a performer is not easy for anyone, but if, you know, you're starting quite a few steps behind, it then becomes even more difficult to overcome and, you know, you never want to be the only one in the room as well. And that's a, you know, sometimes people think that it's an achievement to be the first or an achievement to be the only one, but actually it's a terrible feeling (laughs) to be the only one. And also competing with your people constantly might be such... A crappy feeling too. Absolutely, yeah, that's a really good point you made actually that I hadn't necessarily considered, but I guess at times there can be that sort of increased sense of competition when you know there's only one black role in a show and it's like you're kind of seeing the same people in the room at the time that that competition is kind of heightened because there's only that one role that's possible for you to achieve. Mm. And like you touched on as well about being the only person of colour in the room. That's been me on numerous occasions, on numerous jobs. And there's something unnerving about that. There's Mm. something uneasy about that. It's something that I I always acknowledge and you, I see theatre as a a white space in general, but then when you physically walk into the rehearsal space or physically work on just set and you're the only person of colour, there is is something in that that makes you feel uneasy. Mm. And because of that surrounding, it's 
there's the greater chance for microaggressions to occur. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, then it's like you don't necessarily have someone that maybe you can go to and and unload and and vent about on set there with you. Or if if you're wanting to stand up for something, it's like it's less likely that you're going to have somebody who can understand from the same perspective and Mm -hmm. therefore have that support. Yeah. And there's so so many, yeah, so many different things to it. Again, something that's super interesting to me and I think super important to talk about is that coming into 2020 and 2021, there are more shows that celebrating and champion diversity, which I think is amazing, I think is excellent, and we're starting to see that on screen as well as on the stage. But I think what's so integral is that the companies that are casting, producing, and creating these shows and these films behind the scenes, I think it's really important that we take a good hard look at them and make sure that their teams behind the Mm. scenes as diverse as the performers they're putting on our screens and on our stages. Otherwise, to me personally, it feels rather tokenistic. And I think that's just super important that in this time of of slow change that we really stay on top of. Yeah, absolutely. It is one thing to be performing on stage and reading a a script written by a white person and being within a story that may not, you know, feel comfortable or may not be as nuanced as it could be and another thing if it was something that was a diverse behind-the-scenes crew and also in terms of the management, in terms of the directing, in terms of the kind of big players as well, it it would be really important. So tell me a little bit about the Artists of Colour initiative. Yes, so the Artists of Colour initiative or the AOC is a scholarship program designed to provide financial assistance and industry support to exceptionally talented theatre performers based in Australia that identify as black, indigenous, or people of colour. The scholarship is manifesting in the form of an online competition at the moment Mm -hmm. due to COVID restrictions, and to make that fair for everyone. So performers will be asked to send through material of themselves, acting, singing, dancing, rapping, and this material will be judged by our panel of 25 of Australia's finest theatre performers, creatives, and all people who identify as either black, indigenous, or people of colour, and ultimately will select six finalists and one winner who will all receive this industry support and financial assistance. That is awesome. And how can people support this campaign? Amazing. Well, yeah, if you head to our website, www.aocinitiative.com, all the details are there. You can learn more about the project and exactly who's involved. We also have our GoFundMe campaign. So if you head to GoFundMe and type in AOC, we will be the first one to come up. And here you can donate, and all 100% of these donations will be going towards the six finalists. So 50% of all the money raised in this campaign will go to the first place finalists, 20% to the second place, and then the four other finalists will receive 7.5% each. So incredibly at the moment we're sitting at, I think, almost $13,000, which is so, so exciting and so great to see that we've had that support. And you can also jump on our socials on Facebook and Instagram. We have our handles are AOC Initiative, and that's where we keep everyone updated on, on what's happening. We'll be sharing different bits of exciting news. We've got some soon-to-be exciting news of extra scholarships that we will be handing out through the program in regards to younger performers of colour that are interested in pursuing training full-time and receiving their diploma in musical theatre. So that's something to to keep an eye out for. That is excellent. Well done for starting this initiative and being part of hopefully some awesome new steps in the industry and in our society and in the world. You're doing really good work, Tariq. Thank you. (laughs)
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. If you do want to support the Artists of Colour initiative, you can jump on the socials, you can jump on the website. They've got the GoFundMe. It's all happening. Tariq, thank you so much for your time. Tarek, no Tarek, thanks you so much for your time. I told you, I wasn't going to be able to do it. I know too many you Tariks. Did. I get that, I get that. But you your family. All right, thank you so much thank for Thank you, Tarek. Have a day. You too. Tarek is the founder of the Artists of Colour Initiative and they're launching a scholarship competition to provide financial assistance and industry support for Indigenous, Black and other people of colour within the theatre industry. You can jump on the website and on the socials for more details. Sully Raphael is a poet, activist and youth ambassador. He's such a beautiful inspiration for so many of us young, old and in between. He's just released a book titled Spotlight, which is out um, through Penguin Random House. Sully, how you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's great to have you on. Thanks for joining me. That's my pleasure. So your book is called Spotlight and the one before is called Limelight. When did you first find yourself in the spotlight or in a big spotlight? Oh, to be honest, when I first entered the National Poetry Slam three years ago when I was 12, that was the first time I'd ever performed slam poetry. So I guess you could say that was the first time I'd ever been in the spotlight as such. And, and yeah. Did it feel like good? a long time ago. It, I mean, three years is, is a long time ago, but was it an experience that, you know, was exciting or was it nerve-wracking? Did it feel good upon reflection? It felt really good. I mean, it was really nerve-wracking, but it's just like looking back now, it's just, it was such a great experience to have. I mean, you're still super young now, but 12 years old, you know, three years ago, you won that Slam Poultry Championship. And do you reflect much on that moment and, and what you've learnt from it? I do. I reflect on that moment and a few others I've had. I've met so many amazing people that have had such an amazing journey so far. So I always reflect on that, especially when I'm writing new books or new poetry. And what do you think you've learnt from that moment and what kind of doors did it open for you? Was it like a turning point for you? It definitely was a turning point and it's opened so many doors, the doors that I couldn't even imagine would open. And... When I reflect on it, I I guess it's just, just so many amazing, amazing experiences I've had. Mm. And what I've really learned is that it's just so important to, you know, follow your passion, speak up for what you believe in. And I've had such a great feedback and, you know, such great feedback from, from people, you know, said that I've inspired them or they love my work. And I think that's all I could ask for is for that sort of really positive feedback that's it's been amazing. Yeah. I remember when you did win that and I, my, in my family, we were all very excited for you because in kind of my extended circles in Melbourne, there's this big kind of spoken word poetry scene. And at least there was one a little bit, a little while ago in the last kind of 10 years. And seeing you on there as this young person with your fro doing your thing on stage and then winning that was such an exciting time. And now, of course, you've turned that into so much more. But I want to talk a little bit about your writing. Do you have to be in a particular mood or a particular state of mind when you're writing performance poetry versus maybe putting together other parts of, of your books? Yeah, definitely. You know, if I'm writing in an emotional piece, a sad piece or a piece that I reflect a lot on, I'll have to be in that sort of emotional headspace. You know, I might listen to music along those sort of lines or watch videos or movies just to get in that sort of headspace. And the same goes with uplifting and really, you know, energetic pieces. Mm. So just to be able to get in that headspace really does help to be able to get a good writing flow. 
You mention a lot in this book, Spotlight, what it means to find your voice and looking for a voice and really using your voice. What does it actually feel like to find your voice? Because it seems you have. And is that like an instantaneous experience or is it like a process? To me, it's a process. And I speak about this a lot in Spotlight. Finding your voice is about finding what matters to you, your core values, you know, what you appreciate, who you appreciate and enjoy, enjoy being around, what sort of issues or global issues concern Mm. you. And having all those sort of core values really does help to feel like you might want to uh, help support a cause or and then grow to have a voice. And, you know, having found that, uh, it's really helped me to be able to say what I want to say, to be able to take action on the sort of causes that I feel need to be addressed. And it, it feels good to, you know, know your voice and know what you mm. want to stand up for. It's also great for, like, finding a sense of self. I remember when I was your age in high school, there were a few issues that were happening and I mean there's still issues that are happening particularly with regards to refugees being locked up and and children and and all of that and I remember being in high school being 15 16 17 and really thinking that maybe I was too young to engage or too young to have a voice and learning that in fact I'm absolutely not because there were people who were younger than me who were locked up there are people younger than me who were impacted and that was kind of a really big turning point for me and it's something that you carry into adulthood. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So you also mentioned solidarity and solidarity is an important theme in your book. What does it look like to you and what's the importance of it, would you say? It certainly does and I sort of have solidarity surrounding all the spotlight because solidarity is just so important to me. It's about, you know, standing up for one another, standing up Mm -hmm. for what's right, what we believe in. And I think that is one of the most important, I guess you could say, key areas in Mm -hmm. creating and shaping the kind of future that we all want to be a part of. And so standing together and standing in solidarity is just such an important part of life. And especially in times like this when, you know, Mm -hmm. the future does look maybe uncertain, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the world environmentally, you know, with, with coronavirus as well. So, you know, standing together, standing up for what's right and, you know, standing in solidarity, I think, is just so important. Yeah. And there is a lot going on around the world, whether it's environmental stuff, like you said, health stuff, whether it's economic stuff, whether it's, you know, political, Black Lives Matter. There's lots of stuff happening around the world and in, in this country. What are for you the most kind of pressing issues of your generation that you are speaking up for? Well, at the moment, well, last week was World Suicide Prevention Day, and that's something I really feel passionate about at the moment. You know, this year, sadly, 5,000 young Australians will take their own lives. That's up 50% with the coronavirus. So I feel it's really an important issue that 5,000 families will lose someone. Of you know, And most of those suicides will be between the ages of 15 and 25, which mm. is just such a scary thing considering, you know, these are people who are still, you know, navigating their way through school and you know, haven't even reached adulthood. So I feel like the suicide, the suicide statistics are something that definitely should be alarming uh, for world leaders and for all of us to take action on. Absolutely. If that has kind of triggered anything for anyone, you can jump online uh, or call Lifeline 13 11 14. Solly, thank you so much for your insights for this book. I absolutely loved it and I'm actually going to gift it to my little cousin who I think will also absolutely love it. Can you read us a poem to kind of take us out from the book or from whatever, your archives? Yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. I have a piece called 72 Years, and 72 Years is about how, you know, the global average life expectancy is 72 years, and it's just about how we can live each day to the fullest potential. It's called 72 Years. Awesome. Take it away. In 150 years, every single living person on the planet will be dead. Trust me, I'm not trying to make you feel depressed, but if I research that a little more, I'm sure that number would be less. Simply, this proves that we are batch number quadrillions in the test lab of life. But don't let that fact cut down whatever is still dignified, because we are prominent beings in the book of existence. We are so insignificant that it makes us significant. We are more in denial than thinking about whether or not your wardrobe needs a new style. More in denial than an Einstein worked out that working out E equals MC squared might take a while. More in denial than weighing up whether to upload the attachment as a word or PDF file. We are a heterogeneous society. And life is so long that it's short. So I'm going to live. I'm going to live like I wake up hitting the ground like one of those larger-than-life raindrops making a splash so big that the rippling effect causes a half a cup of water on the kitchen bed of my neighbour's neighbour's house next to my next-door neighbour's house to move a little. I'm going to live like a plant growing more and more roots to find nutrients that my roots are now so deep down into the ground of history that not even a hurricane could blow me over. I'm going to live not like I'd reckon I would rake up wrecking my tenders trying to reach the present, not like extending umbrellas every time a storm of repression comes to never end, but like the start of progression comes out without having to mention the consequences every time there's signs of an Armageddon. I start commencing before I even comprehend that I've begun ascending up to the floor of contentment. We have an average of 72 years or 288 seasons or 864 months or 3,744 weeks, 26,280 days, 630,720 hours, 37,843,200 minutes, 2,270,592,000 seconds, and as many moments as we can possibly make in our mysteriously complex brain holes, in these strong and robust bodies. On this magnetically moving, oozing with confusion, overpopulated, under-restorated, moving for improvement, speck of rock in this wide, largely unknown yet known enough to know that it's largely unknown universe. We have a global average life expectancy of 72 years. What will you do with yours? I would do, I've got the clicks. I'm by myself in the studio because, you know, COVID, we would usually be doing this in person and I'd be clicking and probably finding other people in the building to come and click with me. But that was amazing. Solly, thank you so much for the work that you do for your art and for finding your voice because it's been really incredible to watch you through that journey, but also really uplifting and inspiring for all of us, young and old and in between. Thank you so much, Solly. That's great to hear. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Sully Raphael is a poet, activist and youth ambassador. He's such a beautiful inspiration, like I said, for many of us. And he's just released a book titled Spotlight, which is out through Penguin Random House. You can grab a copy. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.